Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from verse 12 through John chapter 3, verse 21. My focus is going to be on John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, though. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you do to show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light is coming into the world And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You can be seated. Father, once again... I ask that you would do that which you can only do. Bring life to these words. Bring meaning to these words, Lord. 
that you will receive glory because of them, that we will be built up in our inner man because of them, that the process of sanctification would continue in our lives through them. Father, we cannot do this outside of you. We're trusting completely in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle John had a very specific purpose in writing his gospel. That purpose is found in chapter 20, verse 31, which says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John had one goal in mind, to make much of the person of Jesus Christ, and for us to see him as God incarnate. John began his gospel by elevating the name of Christ to such a high point in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, that it became the focal point for theologians for three centuries in their quest to rightly know their Savior. The Word of God, the light and life of men, full of grace and truth, radiating the glory of the only begotten of the Father. John circles back to this many times in his Gospel, and he reiterates the same truths such as his exaltation of God, beginning in chapter 3, verse 16. While the word of God is inspired, the chapter breaks and verse numbers are not. It's unfortunately that we don't read past these dividers. The reason for this is that we often lose the writer's intent and even the true meaning of what he wanted us to know. The verses that we're covering today are a good case in point. Most time when we read through the Bible, we'll stop at each chapter break. Chapter 2 ends here. Okay. Thinking in our minds that this book is like most books, that a chapter break is where the writer then moves on to a new topic, a new scene, or a new focus. But this isn't the case. When we read the Bible, we're supposed to carry that which we've already read with us as we move forward in our reading. When we read it this way, the intent of the author is easier to follow and understand. John began his gospel comparing and contrasting the old creation week and its signs with the new creation week and signs as found in chapter 1 and 2. John marks the days of the new creation week with the next day. It's found in verse 29, verse 35, and then verse 43. And then he rounds out that week with on the third day, which is chapter 2, verse 1. This is the day that Jesus was at the wedding feast, the day that he turned water into wine. This is the sixth day, the day that the law was given. The law by Moses was then contrasted with the reality of that law, as demonstrated by Jesus. John then uses another of his favorite separators found in his gospel, the term after this, which is where we began our reading today. All the stories and interactions, all the signs that happened after verse 12 of chapter 2, the first after this, and until we come to the next after this of chapter 3, verse 22, are meant to be taken together, to be seen in light of each other, to be interpreted by each other. With that in mind, we should understand that the human interactions that happened in ch- or that will happen in chapter 3 are linked to the events of chapter 2. And the events that happen in chapter 2 are merely given to us as explanations or examples of the first 18 verses of chapter 1. So to be able to grasp the full meaning of the events of chapter 3, we have to first understand that a foundation is being laid for us now. That they're prefaced by the three verses that we're going to cover today. These three verses 
act like the cartilage between your bones. Cartilage does not provide strength to bones. It doesn't give them any more integrity. It doesn't make them any more um, bony. But what it does do is it makes it possible for bones to work properly, to connect them in a systematic and orderly fashion. That's what these three verses do. They connect the events that occurred up to this point, the choosing of the disciples, the miracle of changing water to wine, the cleansing of the temple, and the interactions that Jesus had with the Jews with the interactions that he will have with the people in chapter 3. Another feature of the Gospel of John is that most instances he will provide information on the background. For instance, in the turning of the water to wine. That's why he gives us that information. So we'll know some background information as to why Jesus was there. Why running out of wine mattered to Mary. To those in the first century, it was a lot easier for them to figure out this information. They understood the concept a lot easier than we do. But still, when we dig in, it still gives us information and makes this a lot more meaningful. The same is true in our verses today. We're told in verse 23, now when he was in, the, in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Most times of the year, there would have been small crowds of people at the temple. During Jewish holidays, the crowds would get bigger as families gathered together to celebrate. However, the Passover was not just a Jewish holiday. It was the Jewish holiday. There is nothing in America that can compare to the Passover celebration. The closest thing that we can understand what this is is like what the Muslims do for Ramadan when they have millions of people show up. This is what would have happened at the Passover celebration. Estimates of over a million people. Think about a million people descending upon a town. Coming together, families reconnecting, all coming together for one purpose, for the nation to remember the great miracle that God had performed through the Exodus and to look forward to the coming Messiah that he had promised through his prophets. It was in this setting that Jesus went into the outer courts, into the court of the Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 14 and 17 and removed the religious distractions from the only place where non-Jews were allowed to worship. It was also there that Jesus suffered, at least in the minds of the disciples and anybody else who heard this, a humiliating defeat when he didn't do a sign as demanded by the religious leaders. When he didn't answer the challenge that they made when they demanded a sign from him. And then and not responding or clarifying the meaning when he said he's going to raise the temple in three days. It's also with this background in mind that we're told in verse 23 that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, John hasn't given us many instances of signs or wonders in his gospel to this point. Only one so far. Remember, it was never his goal to, be, to write an all-inclusive account of the life and events of Jesus. He later states in his gospel, John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And he finishes his gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, with this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So it would be safe to assume that life with Jesus was far from ordinary. However, he didn't do signs and wonders to entertain people or garner approval from men. He didn't do them to elicit belief in him or to prove to men that he was the Messiah as if they were the judge and journey and had the final verdict on that matter. He is the Messiah. He performed signs revelations of who he is and wonders 
redemptive acts born out of his attributes because he is God. And God is gracious. But he wouldn't give the religious leaders a sign to prove that he was a Messiah in the temple court. But he must have been doing signs on a regular basis, which is the catalyst for people in verse 23 to believe in his name. This had to be very frustrating and confusing for the disciples, who also had suffered shame when Jesus seemingly could not or would not live up to the demands of the religious leaders. When we, modern people, read about signs and wonders, we think of them as glitches in the system, an interruption into the natural process by the supernatural. Or we'll just go to the other extreme and are so casual about them that when we read them, we either dismiss them as superstition or race right over them with no wonder at all. The Jews who lived in that day saw Jesus performing these signs and wonders. This is why they believed. Because from early childhood, they had been taught the stories of the great miracles that the prophets of old had performed. The ten plagues of Moses and the Exodus. Elijah and his 16 miracles. Elisha and his 32 miracles. They have been fed since infancy on the milk of the goodness of God shown through the Torah and the promise of the coming Messiah. They were taught to look for the coming Messiah that would do these wonders and even greater works in the restoration of all things. They had hope of the coming Messiah who would fulfill the prophecies of old, upon who God would set his seal and his new covenant, who would make all things new in restoring the kingdom. This is the climate that Jesus came into. So it's no wonder that many believed on his name when they saw the signs and wonders that he did. There's an incident that happens later in the book of John when Jesus heals the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. The religious leaders became heated over the fact that the Sabbath rules had been broken and then outraged when Jesus called God his Father. This was his response. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as a Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that may, all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But I'm getting ahead of the story. Because at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the religious leaders were still cautiously optimistic about Jesus. They, like the disciples, were confused by this man who had heard, who they heard was doing signs that only a prophet from God could do, but who wouldn't do a sign for them, whose teachings often went against the traditions of the fathers. The jury with them was still out. They still hadn't decided if he was the Messiah or not. But Jesus pointed to his signs and wonders as undeniable physical proof that he was the Messiah. John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am the Father. And we're told In verse 23, that because of these signs, many believed in his name. Jesus performed signs as proof that he was the Messiah. The people saw these signs, saw these miracles, and were amazed because of them. And because of them, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And not only did they believe, but they were sincere in their belief. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. So, if these people believed in his name, then what are we to make of verse 24 and 25? Well, herein lies the rub. The answer is all wrapped up in what it was that they believed in. Speaking of their belief or faith, John Calvin has this to say, Yet this was not a pretended faith by which they wished to gain reputation among men. For they were convinced that Christ was some great prophet, and perhaps they even ascribed to him the honor of being Messiah, of whom there was at that time a strong and general expectation. But as they did not understand the peculiar office of the Messiah, their faith was absurd, because it was exclusively directed to the world and the earthly things. It was also a cold belief and accompanied by true feelings of the heart. For hypocrites assent to the gospel, not that they may devote themselves in obedience to Christ, nor that with sincere piety they may follow Christ when he calls them, but because they don't venture to reject entirely the truth which they have known, and especially when they can find no reason for opposing it. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. What is meant that he knew all people? Or what about verse 25? He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The signs and wonders that Jesus did were amazing. And the compassion that he showed toward the people around him in feeding the hungry and healing the hurting are as amazing as well. These signs and wonders are amazing. But none of them truly demonstrate his majesty or bring greater glory to his name more than the implications that are made in verses 24 and 25. Because the greatest demonstration of the majesty and glory of Jesus is found in his grace towards us. In the mercy that he has towards sinners. See, we might think that we have a grasp on human nature. We may think that we understand people, understand why they act the way that they do. But we only know people as good as we know ourselves. It's different for Jesus. Jesus knew these people. He is privy to every aspect of their lives, and ours as well. He, knew, he knows our every thought from beginning to end. He knows every sin that we have ever committed. We are completely exposed and naked before him. He sees us as we truly are. We are like the Frankenstein monster, a horrible caricature of the person that we are first created to be. We are treasonous rebels that are convinced of our own good. We are crazed terrorists that are hell-bent on overthrowing the reigning government. We are Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Osama bin Laden all rolled up in one. And as proof of this, we'll argue, at least in our own minds, that no, I'm not. I'm not that bad. This is what verse 24 means when it says that Jesus knew them all. This is how he knows you and me. The sad truth is that we still try to hide our sin from him. We think that by not confessing them, that he won't know them. We think that because no one else knows of them, that we're safe, that we're good. They still think good about me. And using the bricks and mortar of selfishness and lack of forgiveness, we build walls around our hearts, holding on to personal pain and hurt feelings, 
not understanding that any wall that we build around our heart also is a wall that separates us from the God that we say that we love. We cruise the internet and look at things that we shouldn't. We judge our brothers and sisters with malice in our hearts as we smile and shake their hands on Sunday mornings. And worse, much worse, we live fearful and untrusting lives in the sovereign care of our Lord, all the while thinking that we're getting away with it. We're not. This is the way that Jesus knows us. He knows our every thought, the intent behind every one of our actions. He knows that he is the only hope for us. But verses 24 and 25 aren't given as a descriptor of Jesus. They are an explanation of the belief that is spoken of in verse 23. A belief that was sincere, but sincerely wrong. Proverbs 30, verse 12, tells us that there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Again in Proverbs 14, 12, says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way unto death. These verses don't speak solely of the atheists but they also speak of many who profess Christ and are truly not his. We'll console ourselves about people who say that they believe. I believe. Convincing ourselves that we don't need to preach the gospel to them. After all, they just told me that they believe in God. They may even see that they believe in Jesus, that Jesus is God. But Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Again, John Calvin on verse 25. Because he knew them all, nothing is more dangerous than hypocrisy for this reason among others, that it's an exceedingly common fault. There is scarcely any man who is not pleased with himself. And while we deceive ourselves by empty flatteries, we imagine that God is blind like us. But here we are reminded how widely his judgment differs from ours. For he sees clearly those things which we cannot perceive, because they are concealed by some disguise. And he estimates according to their hidden source, that is, according to the most secret feelings of our heart, those things which dazzle our eyes by false luster. This is what Solomon says, that God weighs in his balance the hearts of men while they flatter themselves in their ways. Proverbs 21.2 Let us remember then that there are none that are true disciples of Christ but those whom he approves because in such a matter he alone is competent to decide and to judge. This is where confusion comes in concerning salvation. Why there are so many religious people out there but so few who seem to be truly regenerate. That you believe is not what is important. Who you believe in is. You can can find sincere and yet sincerely wrong belief in a Mormon temple, in a Muslim mosque, a Jehovah's Witness meeting house, and a Southern Baptist building. It's not the act of believing that saves you. It's not even the object of your belief that does. The people that are spoken of as believing in Jesus in John 2.23 believed. They believed. The object of their belief was the man who stood in front of them, was the Messiah. And yet they still believed incorrectly. 
Their belief did them no good in light of the coming judgment of this Messiah. They had the right feeling, they had the right person, but they believed incorrectly about this Jesus. They believed incompletely concerning his lordship, and Jesus knew it. They believed in the man, Jesus, a man that they thought was just like them, a man that they could manipulate. These people wanted this Jesus to reign over their kingdom. They wanted him to be their Messiah as they determined him to be. If there were ever a people who should have been able to believe that Jesus is God, it was these people. If there were ever a people who could have been saved by signs and wonders, it would have been these people. They had him in their midst. They were witnesses to his signs and wonders. But more importantly, they were witness to his life. The reason that they believed incorrectly is the same reason why so many do today as well. They were still in bondage to sin. They were still sons of Satan. A slavery in a family that they were born into. It was in their DNA because of Adam. And to which they had personalized through their own actions. These people are the proof text that no one will ever come to Christ. No one can, can believe on his name outside of the miracle of regeneration. Paul explained the human condition very well in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says, You were dead in, which, in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Am I sure that this includes everybody? Kind of sounds like there might be some wiggle room in there. We got Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is what makes these seeker-friendly places such an abomination. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under the lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I said that these three verses act as a cartilage between what has taken place in chapter 2 and interactions of chapter 3. And as such, not only do these verses speak of the faith that these people had, but it also gives us a means for us rightly to understand the motivation of Jesus to give us insight into his actions and interactions with the folks in chapter 3. Jesus was not people-focused. He didn't act, live, breathe to please people. He came to do his Father's will, to bring glory to his Father. He acted out of love for the Father. John six thirty eight through 40 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. To ensure that we don't get confused as to why he came to earth, the only sign that he would give to confirm that he was the Messiah was the cross. He knew, and he wanted them to know, 
that he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for the elect. He is much too majestic, and his kingdom is much too large to have been their Messiah. To have entrusted himself to these people, he wouldn't be the king of their kingdom. He would not be the savior of their world, nor ours either. His life, his signs and wonders, and his resurrection were the foundation that, we, that he was laid and upon which his gospel has been built. Going back to the John 6 verse that I quoted where Jesus said that he only did the will of his father, he then followed this statement up with this one. No one can come to me unless a father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, except who, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. No one has the ability to choose to believe that Jesus is Lord, to accept him as their Savior on their own will. How then do we have faith to believe when we know that it's not within ourselves to do so? And the better question is this, how do we know that we have true faith in the real Jesus? Scripture tells us. Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. And yet Paul told us that no one seeks after him. We know that we must believe. We know that we must seek him. But we're also told that no one does seek him and that we can't believe. That no one has faith. But we also know that there are people who do believe, who do seek after him. So how does that work? Good thing we've got scripture. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Our faith, everyone who has real saving faith, only has it because it has been given to them as a gift by God. Well, how do we get this faith? Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Okay, but how do we know that we have real saving faith, that we really believe, that we really believe in the real Jesus? Well, Jesus answered that. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. This is why getting the gospel is so crucial. The false gospel and false Messiah that was being preached and taught by the religious leaders in the days of Jesus made much of man and little of God. It didn't prepare the hearts of the people for the true Messiah. Their gospel was no gospel at all. It was all about man's felt needs, about the nation Israel being set free from the Romans. It was centered on a God who wanted to make their lives easier, better, to make them healthy, wealthy, and wise. It was centered on a God who would never be humiliated, a God who would not offend their self, sense of self, who wouldn't call them to holiness, would not challenge them in every aspect of their lives, and who would certainly never humiliate them. These people believed they were holy. They believed they did keep the law. 
This was the Messiah that they had been prepared for. This was the God that they saw when they saw Jesus. This is the same gospel that is being preached today in most churches. And why this watered-down, humanistic, best-life-now gospel is so sinister. A.W. Pink had this to say concerning this teaching and those who come to believe in this Savior. He said, quote, The gospel of Satan is not a system of revolutionary principles, nor yet a program of anarchy. It doesn't promote strife and war, but aims at peace and unity. It seeks not to set mother against daughter, nor father against son, but fosters the fraternal spirit whereby the human race is regarded as one great brotherhood. It doesn't seek to drag down the natural man, but to improve him and uplift him. It advocates education, cultivation, and appeals to the best that's within us. It aims to make this world such a comfortable and congenial habitat that Christ's absence from it will not be felt and God will not be needed. It endeavors to occupy man with so much of this world that he has no time or inclination to think of the world to come. It propagates the principles of self-sacrifice, charity, benevolence. It teaches us to live for the good of others and to be kind to all. It appeals strongly to the carnal mind and is popular within the masses because it ignores the solemn fact that by nature man is a fallen creature alienated from the life of God and dead in trespasses and sin, and that his only hope lies in being born again. A.W. Pink went on, speaking about those that believe in this false gospel, this false Christ. He said, For such to depend upon him for pardon in life is not faith, but blatant presupposition. It is but to add insult to injury. And for any such to take his holy name upon their polluted lips and profess to be his is the most terrible blasphemy. It comes perilously nigh to committing that sin which there is no forgiveness. Alas, alas, that modern evangelism is encouraging and producing such hideous and Christ-dishonoring monstrosities. This is what is being preached out there. You may say that it was unjust for God not to accept the belief of these people, since they have been force-fed a false gospel, lied to by false prophets, led under false under-shepherds. In this, you're proving once again that you're completely human-focused and not God-focused. Romans 1, 18-32 tells us, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. No, they like the false gospel. They like the false under-shepherds that tickle their ears. Because it makes much of them. It makes them feel religious. They like attending churches like that because they get their Jesus fixed and they're good for the week to go out and sin. Jesus would not be their God. He would not be their Messiah. A God that was at their beck and call. A God that was more concerned about their felt needs than their eternal condition. A God that would bring about peace in their world but cared nothing about holiness. This truth, that we're all guilty of treason and have fallen short of the glory of God, is what makes the gospel the good news. Let us ensure that we know what the gospel is. It's not your testimony. It's not that God loves everyone 
and wants to be their homeboy. The gospel is the truth that there is a holy, righteous, eternal, and just God who created everything. And that we humans have committed treason against this God by thinking that we can overthrow his dominion over us. This God will not rule me. This action has killed our hearts. It has rendered us unable to see the true Messiah, to come to him for salvation, and is worthy of eternal damnation. But God, in his holy mercy, stepped down out of eternity and took on the form of his creation, becoming a man and lived a perfect life, taking upon himself the penalty of the sins of those he called his own. He paid in full the price of those sins, drinking to the dregs of the cup of his righteous fury against the sin of men. He died and then on the third day rose from the grave to prove that the sacrifice of the Son was an acceptable one for the sins of those that he has saved. This is the Jesus that was walking through Jerusalem during that Passover celebration, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. This is the Messiah that we must must believe in to be saved. There are many today within churches that believe. They're even sincere in their belief. But they believe wrong. They may believe in Jesus, but the Jesus that they believe in is not sovereign. He's not sovereign over everything in the creation. Especially, he is not sovereign over salvation. They may claim that he is their God, but they deny him as Lord. Deny that he has authority over every aspect of their lives. They, like the people in verse 23, have a spurious faith, believing in a man-made Jesus. Paul knew this was the case in the first century church. He told the believers as much in 2 Corinthians 12. Within that church, he saw the following. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. That's verse 20. He knew that true believers could act this way, but that they would repent at being rebuked. But he also knew that within that church, there were those that claimed belief, maybe even had sincere belief, but they believed wrong. That's why he told them and us in verse 5 of chapter 13, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Don't disregard this examination. Don't despise it. Don't shy away from it. This examination, just like any examination, doesn't judge. It's the It only is the means by which truth is judged. By which the means that truth is revealed. And don't think that attendance at a church, even a reformed church, is proof of salvation. Remember that Jesus didn't send those who believe incorrectly about him away. He didn't separate them from the true believers. They remained with him through much of his ministry. Some to the very end. Dear ones, these verses are given us so that we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows us. He knew us from the beginning of creation. There is nothing that he does not know about. In fact, he knows you better than you know yourself. It's only the grace of God that he has not revealed to us the true depths of our sin. 
and our depravity. Because if he did, we would be completely undone. But as you sit here, the question you must ask yourself is this. The most important question, the most important examination that you will ever take is this. What is it that you believe? What Messiah do you believe in? Is he the Messiah of the Bible? Or the Messiah that makes you comfortable in your sin? I know that you're sincere in your belief, but so were these people. They believed in the person, Jesus, as Savior. A Jesus that would not offend them. That didn't challenge them in their daily life. And the frightening truth is, it did them no good. We only have one chance, and that is to flee to the true Christ. In him is salvation. In him is freedom. In him is life. If this truth makes you feel uncomfortable... Good. Perhaps God is regenerating your heart, allowing you to know your need for him to save you, allowing you to know that the belief that you thought you had isn't true. If this is you, call out to the Lord, acknowledge your sin, and beg him to save you. He will. We have his word on it. And saints, revel in the glory of God that has allowed you to see the real Jesus. The Jesus that does offend you. That will not allow you to rule over your own life. The true Messiah the founder and perfecter of our faith, the Messiah that would give no other sign than the cross, that he is the Messiah. This is the Jesus that we must see and believe in if we're to be saved. Let's pray. Father, in and of ourselves, we have no ability to come to you, to see you as righteous and holy and true. We need you to save us from ourselves. Father, thank you for saving your elect, for calling us dirty, rotten, sinners, sons of God, for making this true, making it a reality. Praise your name for your grace and your goodness to us. Amen.